Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this month's episode of Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. It's June in Texas, and as Dr. Rollins likes to say, this is the month that you make or break quail crop. With us today is Dr. Rollins. Hello, Dale. Good morning, Gary. It's always great to be with you. When you talk about wildlife management and some of the theories, uh, some of the strategies of wildlife management, there really is a father of wildlife management out there, and it's Aldo Leopold. That's correct, and I suspect most of our listeners have heard that that name, Aldo Leopold. If not, uh, he was a, a Yale-trained forester and the, the first person that really had the, the uh, title of a wildlife manager at a university. And so he uh, wrote several books. He worked in several parts of the country. He is such an eloquent writer that uh, if you've never read any of Aldo Leopold's readings, Probably the easiest one to be get hold of would be one called a Sand County Almanac, and uh, you will fall in love with this prose. We may go through some of those chapters at some point in time later on, but I always, in my lifetime, there have been two people that have just been savants. They, they could say what they did in the 1930s, and it could be on the headlines of today's news and be just as appropriate. Those two individuals being Aldo Leopold, and Oklahoma's favorite son, Will Rogers. Very good. And I doubt if they ever knew one another, but I, I quote them very, very often because their quotes and their thoughts are so timely. But Leopold wrote the first book on wildlife management. It was called Game Management back in 1933. And you can still get that one on online bookstores too. But in the preface of that game management, he wrote this sentence that I think is is a foundational to our next three uh, podcasts. He said that the central thesis of game management is this. Game can be restored by the creative use of the same tools which have heretofore destroyed it. And he named those as the axe, the plow, the cow, the fire, and the gun. Now think back to the 20s and 30s when these philosophies were being shaped. Those are the low points in wildlife management in the United States. Uh, dust bowls and overharvest and a lot of different things. It wasn't a shiny time for wildlife management, but these tools, and again, um, Leopold's omniscience, his, his ability to see a lot of things and put it all together, uh, really served as many people call it the Bible of wildlife management kind of thing. So very well written, and again, I encourage you as a homework assignment, is to get a copy of Game Management and begin to read some of these things. And you're going to see what I'm talking about, about his ability to um, be clairvoyant, if you will, and some of the things that were going to happen. Is the term creative use really the operative word there? I think it is because, again, we're talking about axe being timber management in his time. We're talking about the plow. And, again, the you know, prairies were being broken up and a, and a lot of erosion you know, happening in the 20s and 30s. And then the cow, uh, one of the most common tools, but typically heavily overgrazed in most sites. And then the uh, fire was, again, 
kind of when Smokey Bear came on and all of a sudden fire, which was a natural part of the most North American ecosystems, was taboo at that time. And then the gun, and we'll talk about the role of hunting in, in these things. So we'll go through all those. I've split it up over three podcasts. The first one we're going to talk about is the axe and the plow. Very good. So we'll go into those first. And in the context of um, the 2020 landscape, uh, Leopold's idea of an axe in Texas, the axe takes the form of the brush control. So it takes the form of a D7 caterpillar or an herbicide or something like that. But it's talking about manipulating woody cover, in his case forestry, in our case brushy rangelands kind of thing. And before I uh, get into that, I've got to kind of set the stage for one of our most powerful tools, and we've discussed it just briefly in previous podcasts, but the idea of plant succession. Right. And when I say plant succession, I'm talking about the orderly, predictable process of change in plant communities over time. Now, that sounds pretty botanically complex, but basically what we're saying is, if we leave this, bare, if we plow this ground right out here and then we walk away from it, it's not going to stay barren ground. Something's coming up. Well, first year is probably going to be pigweeds and sunflowers, and then over time some weedy grasses. And if we walk away from it, 25 years from now it might be back in little blue stem. So there is a process of change. And as a wildlife manager, we've got to say which part of that continuum do we like for our critters and then know how to manipulate that so uh, that's what I call Rollins rules of plant succession know your plants know which ones are important to your particular suite of species and then know how to manipulate them with Leopold's tools axe plow cow fire and gun Um, some of the things we need to think about as we're talking about the axe is again when you think about the axe in your mind, you're visualizing probably a bulldozer right, in Texas. Like that. Now, there are some variants of that that we'll talk about a little bit this morning. But as we think about various tools, you know, if you look in your toolbox, Gary, you've got a ratchet, you've got a crescent wrench, you've got a 9-16 box-in wrench, some screwdrivers, and the same tool doesn't work for every job. Now, I tend to grab a pair of ice grip pliers and think I can do just about anything with it, but I also twist the head off a bolt or I bust my knuckles, or same thing with a crescent wrench. So some are pretty generalist kind of tools, but then uh, some require uh, specific tools. And so keep that analogy in mind as we're going through some of these things. One of the things that were most important to us is what I refer to as selectivity. Our rangelands are a complex of vegetation. Uh, at least at the Rolling Plains Coral Research Ranch, we have 27 species of woody plants. Now, your traditional rancher would say, oh my gosh, those poor devils. We say, thank goodness, we've got 27 species. There's about three of those that cause me some heartburn. Okay. The other 24 I consider an asset. But if I go in there with the mentality of fence line to fence line brush control, and there's been a lot of that done over the last 75 years in Texas. I'm taking out everything in one fell swoop. I want a technique that allows me to pick and choose because some of those plants are much more valuable to me than others. The ones that I don't have that much um, interest in, if you will, 
for the most part are the junipers, the cedars, in our case, redberry juniper in West Texas, and the mesquites, because the mesquites can become so thick, and, and they are so thick on a lot of West Texas, that they're a big issue. But I like some mesquites. And so I want to, rather than be able to fly that spray plane over, it doesn't recognize what I call a good mesquite and a bad mesquite. It's just a mesquite. I want to have a little bit more refinement, a little bit more resolution as to which trees I'm leaving. So I'll be talking about selectivity and keep that in mind as we, as we go through here. So it really can be a plus or minus, brush control. Absolutely. Well, any of the tools that we talk about can be a plus or a minus. Uh, so, again, I want to talk about those today in the context of using them as a plus for quail management. And we have one of the questions as a landowner, as a student of quail, we have to think about it this time. When I'm doing, doing consulting work with a client, the first thing I ask that individual to provide me is a list of your ranch goals. Where, and I always put cattle over on the right, it's important to put them on the political right, but where are your goals along a continuum with wildlife on the left at zero and, and cows, livestock at 10? Okay. And where do they tell me? Do they tell me they wanna be an eight, which is cattle primarily, but I like livestock, or over here where I'm a one. I don't really want any cattle unless you tell me I need some. Or the guy, and many of them will profess to be five, right down right the Right in the fence. middle. Well, that's the most difficult position to be in. I would rather work with somebody that's one side or the other because they're going to be more adept at recognizing what the trade-offs are. And there will be trade-offs no matter where we occur. So you just got to prioritize and appreciate those. But let's get into the axe management because, again, in Texas, the axe is not timber management. It's brush control. And it's probably one of, our, one of our most commonly used and commonly abused tools. Uh, one of the greatest, as I drive all across West Texas, I'm always looking at the window and saying, that's a two on a scale of 110. Oh, there's an eight over here. And most of the time, if it's a one or a two, it's because there's been one or two things happen. Too much brush has been cleared. They've had a vendetta against brush, and a vendetta is always a dangerous thing. But they, they say, we don't want any brush, we're mad at it, we're gonna clear it all. That doesn't result in good wildlife habitat, it's terribly expensive. Limit your opportunities for income down the road, or it's been overgrazed, chronically overgrazed. We'll talk about that in the next session. But uh, <clears throat> we got, there are just several key points about brush and quail habitat. First, some brush is important. It doesn't have to be 2,000 acres of heavy mesquite. That's not a good thing. So there's a plus and minus there. Uh, we want to have typically somewhere between 5% and 20 or 25% brush. Now when I say that, visualize that you're in a helicopter at say 1,000 feet and you're looking down. And when I say 25% brush, I'm saying 25% of the ground at noon is covered by shade. I see. So that's what we call canopy cover. Uh, if, if it's so thick that it looks thick from the air, it's dog hair thick on the ground. And it's probably about 40% brush cover. So we want to thin that in many situations, but we don't want to take it all out. And we want to recognize that, let's for, for example, within mesquites, 
there are what I call good mesquites and not so good mesquites. And I want to be able, if I've got a good mesquite right here and a bad mesquite right next to it, I want to be able to use a tool that I can excise that bad one but leave that good one. And that's what we refer to as uh, brush sculpting. I introduced that phrase brush sculpting in 1997 and it was one of those uh, teachable moments, I guess, because it was very popular in South Texas about kind of this philosophy and it moved slowly into the rolling plains in West Texas and it just basically says the planned selective control of brush to enhance wildlife habitat. And again, especially at that time, the uh, value of deer and quail exceeded the value of livestock production. So we're trying to look for a system that is compatible, uh, recognizes the compromises between beef production and wildlife management, and then how can we be Edward Scissorhands? I remember the movie. Edward Scissorhands <laughs> out there on the rangeland saying, we want to take this out, but leave that. And, and uh, so we, we just generically refer to that as sculpting. And that's a, really a term that is newer. There are some previous terms kind of in the evolution of that mindset that our folks may recognize that really date back to the 1950s. Oh yeah, brush, the, the phrase brush management or brush control, it was for, first started out in, as brush eradication after World War II. They came out with these herbicides, what they call the phenoxy herbicides, 2,4-D, 2,4-5-T. And they thought this was a godsend and by golly, there wasn't going to be any brush 10 years now. Well, it turned out that the mesquite, especially the mesquite, was more resilient than that. And so they uh, tempered their thoughts of brush eradication to brush control in the 60s. And then in the 70s, they realized, well, we're having a tougher time controlling than what we thought. So they talked about integrated brush management systems. And that kind of was pervasive up through the, the 80s. And then in the early 90s and the mid 90s, we came to this brush sculpting uh, philosophy. So again, it's, a, it's an evolution of thought over time about really how tough brush is. If you can't beat them, join them kind of thing, but let's make them work for both livestock and for wildlife. Strategically, we held a brush sculpting symposium back in uh, 1990, no, I'm sorry, 2002 in Stonewall County. I gotta give you just a little bit of background on that. Do you know where you were on April 19th, 1995? I do not. I do. I was at the Texas A&M Center in Vernon, Texas with about 25 of the big ranchers, and there are some big ranchers yes, in that part of the world. And so they were gathered around this table along with the A&M scientists, and the question on, on the table was, what could A&M do to help you the most with your profitability of your ranching? And so they started and just each one of them bemoaned the brush issue. If I could just, if y'all would just give us something that'd kill that mesquite. Another guy said, I love to get on that D6 and give her hell. Said, I know I'm probably not doing any good, but it sure does feel good. So that type of frustration and angst you heard as they moved around the table, well, it got around to me and I was the very last one to speak. And I stood up and I said, what you guys need is a brush appreciation day. Pallid stairs, run this guy out of here, appreciate, does not go with brush. I was quick to point out that appreciation is judged with heightened awareness, be cautiously or sensitively aware of. Well, it was three years later before we held our brush appreciation day, did it in Stonewall County. And the very first stop, we went to a guy that had cleared too much brush. Right. 
and he was trying to sell it. Well, mm -hmm. it wasn't a very marketable piece of property because he had taken off the main thing that today's buyer is looking for, and that's wildlife habitat. And after we got through with that stop, we moved on to another one and we're talking about real estate values and clearing and so forth. And he came up to me kind of on the side and said, uh, I wish I'd met you three years ago. <laughs> so again, it's, it's action. My preacher always says you're free to choose your actions, but you're not free to choose consequences. So we got to appreciate, we got to judge with heightened awareness. If we do this, what's it going to do in the three-year window? What's it going to do in the 20-year window? Kind of thing, and appreciate what those trade-offs may be. There are several forms of, uh, first of all, after that, um, after that uh, brush sculptor field day, we had a reporter from Wichita Falls. I believe his name was Richard Mize. And about a month later, he came out with an article called Feng Shui on the Back 40. <laughs> and I thought, well, what the heck's he talking about? I'm, right. not very, I'm not very educated worldly. <laughs> But I looked up the word feng shui, and it's basically applied landscaping. Okay. And so it's the, you know, an interior decorator is going to use feng shui to create a positive chi, and the energy will flow better because of the surroundings and so forth. And as I thought about it, man, he nailed it, because that's exactly what happens on the back 40. If you use this applied landscaping or feng shui out on the back 40, that's a good thing to think about, because... Wildlife move much like water across an environment kind of thing. So we can train and manipulate where we want animals to appear by the types of brush and the degree of brush that we do. So it's, it's, a, it's I'm now more into feng shui than I ever thought I would be. But there are various forms of managing brush. We can do it mechanically. Again, we're talking typically a bulldozer. The tool of choice recently is, um, is, is an excavator. Yes. Uh, roller choppers, these kinds of things. These are big toys, big toys for big boys. And so a lot of that takes place. There are some pros and cons to that. Uh, they're very selective. If I've got a hackberry right here and a mesquite right here, I can use that excavator, take out that mesquite and leave that hackberry. And that's important to me. Uh, they're very selective. The soil disturbance, you're, you're disturbing the soil and, and your typical rancher would see that as a negative. I'm in I'm into weeds. And so anytime we disturb the soil, we create those early successional plants, the dove weeds, the sunflowers, the broom weeds that I love and quail love. So the soil disturbance from our perspective is a good thing. And and brush control with mechanical means gives a lot of soil disturbance. The treatment life in West Texas, I'll say West Texas you're probably talking pretty good treatment life, anywhere from 15, 25 years. Now, if we move to South Texas, all of a sudden, you're talking about three to five okay. years kind of thing because the longer growing season and the more difficult species of brush like they have down there just can't come back very quickly. So it's all site specific. The cost for mechanical treatments are high. Is it? Because it's an individual tree. Kind of thing, and so if I've got my D6 out there, I can go from this mesquite tree to this one. And if I'm talking about 300 or more trees per acre, it takes a lot of time to do that, so it is expensive. Uh, we can do it with chemicals, I guess we prefer to use the word herbicides because chemicals leaves a bad taste in our mouth. But uh, herbicides, and we're talking here, we're talking about things like a Sendero. 
uh, Velpar, um, Grazon, various trade names that, that people are familiar with. And we can use these and they can be very effective for us. They can offer a moderate degree of selectivity. This new one, Sendero, it basically takes out mesquite and not a lot of, not a lot of other things. Again, your, your old rancher would see that as a negative. I see that as a positive. I want to protect my little leaf sumacs. I want to protect my hackberries and some of those other things that are out there. So I like a herbicide that is fairly selective, and, and there are some fairly selective herbicides today. How would you apply it? With an airplane, with an airplane or a, a helicopter. Uh, and again, now we're talking about stands, for example, of mesquite of say 400 or more trees per acre. That's fairly dense. You can't do that with your four-wheeler mm -mm. and your IPT, which is a wonderful tool, but it just overwhelms that. So you gotta come in with a spray plane or helicopter, relatively inexpensive, probably in the neighborhood of 35 to $50 an acre, depending on what the herbicide that you use. No, really no soil disturbance. So again, the, the cow guy likes that. My standpoint, I would like to have had some soil disturbance and kind of associated with that, we can have what I call forb shock because we're gonna be killing some of those weeds, many of which we would, we would consider desirable. So that's kind of a, a ping against using herbicides. But they're, they're quite common and they can be used. Now the treatment life, again, is, is decent in West Texas, maybe 15 to 20 years in South Texas, three or four. So uh, much more common, you gotta retreat much more often in South Texas. Then you've got, um, you got biological control, which basically means goading, using goats to retreat brush. That's not very effective in quail country, so we're not gonna talk about it relative to quail. And then you've got fire, and fire is typically a maintenance treatment that we can use to help prolong the life of our more expensive, more expensive treatments. So uh, the impacts of fire depend on precipitation, soils, grazing management, and what we call the fire return interval. How often should you burn area? Historically, most of the South Plains was burned off at intervals of three to seven years. What happens about every three to seven years? An El Nino weather event. So you grow rain, you grow forage, gets hot and dry, that's probably when your large wildfires were gonna take place. So trying to either mimic that or alter that depending on what you want to do. At RPQRR, we use fire and we like to consider ourselves as pyro managers, not pyromaniacs. We've had about 82 fires out there over the last 10 years. Uh, none of them have escaped. We have earned the confidence of the commissioner's court. We are the only place in the nation, to my knowledge, that can burn, even when we're in a burn ban, and we're not certified prescribed burn managers. But we have convinced our commissioner's court that we're not derelicts out there just striking matches we know what we're doing, and we've got a very productive relationship with them, and uh, we're doing a lot to advance the safe use of prescribed burning. The, um, the politics, of, I'm not saying that go home and try this as a result of listening to this webisode, learn more about burning and so forth, and we've got a lot of information on our website, quailresearch.org, and you can learn more about how to use these various techniques and entertain them uh, before you go out and try to practice them on your own sites. You have some workshops out at the ranch uh, about fire, correct? We have some, uh, occasionally we'll have what we call a fire appreciation day, or we will be, uh, each year when we're going to, be going to be burning, 
we'll put out an email saying, hey, if you want to come get some experience in a prescribed fire, and we'd recommend you have experience on at least 20 burns before you try to initiate one by yourself. So we, yeah, we do have opportunities, uh, no-cost opportunities for people to come out, become aware of how fire can be used safely, and become more confident in how they can use it. From a, a brush management, brush sculpting standpoint, uh, has the attitude of Texas landowners evolved as the terminology and as some of those tools have evolved? Are you seeing a, a different mindset out there? Well, I'll go back to that uh, brush appreciation that we held in 2002. And we had a member, we had a director of the Texas and Southwest Cattle Raisers speak. His name was Jerry Bob Daniel. And uh, ranches a lot of country up there. And so he's standing there and he's talking to his peers. So you've got folks from the Matador Ranch and the Four Sixes, and, and we've been kind of talking about the positive aspects of brush and selective control of brush. And a lot of the ranchers are sitting with their arm crossed like, I don't know if I want to buy into the not, this or not. So we had one of their peers, Jerry Bob Daniel, get up there and he said this, and I quote, fellas, the way I see it, we have two choices. We can either learn to work with them or we can learn to work for them, end quote. With them and for them meant absentee landowners. Oh. These are the people that are buying up the property. If the cattleman wants to be able to work a relationship to where they would like to lease that property for cattle grazing, they've got to be more adaptable about how they use cows because that landowner wants to see them use cows as a tool to manage quail habitat or deer habitat and not just have cows and deer or cows and quail at the same time. So yeah, that attitude is, uh, it, it, took a good it took a good increase in the uh, late 1990s, early 2000s, and then with other sources of uh, income, like oil and gas development and wind rights and that kind mm -hmm. of thing, those dollars are probably the easier to put up with than having hunters on your property. So I think it's it's kind of slipped back the, the the continuum or the uh, pendulum has kind of moved back a little bit more to the left in recent years. What do you think Aldo Leopold's opinion would be to see how the term acts in context for 2020 is being used? I think he would uh, agree with it. And again, uh, I just think it, he, was a, he was a big systems thinker. And he would often, and one was one of his quotes would be that the first precaution of intelligent tinkering is to save every cog and wheel. So again, we don't always recognize the value of prickly pear in this situation or wolfberry in this situation. As a quail guy, I appreciate all of those, and as we all learn about it. And he also said the urge to comprehend must precede the urge to reform. So he's saying, let's study the situation. Let's become students of it before we try to go in there and do reclamation work. Give us a peek till next month's episode. What are we gonna be talking about? What are those additional tools next month? We're gonna be talking about the cow grazing management, which is again, a huge tool on West, on Texas rangelands. And we're gonna be talking about the plow, which is everything from uh, the, the farm bill programs to soil disturbance. Well, we look forward to that discussion. Thank you, Dr. Dale. And we hope you've enjoyed today's discussion as we begin to learn more about the five tools of Aldo Leopold's game management, uh, very important for quail and for the stewardship of those properties for quail. 
If you'd like to know more about this episode or others that we have previously broadcast, uh, go to the website, quailresearch.org. You'll find archived podcasts there and more information in terms of the data, the research that perhaps Dr. Rollins alluded to today. We look forward to you joining again next month. Uh, this is Gary Joyner of the Texas Farm Bureau. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.